This is the Humboldt Chronicles. I am the queen of everything. I gotta be high before I can sway. Lighter tea and let it be. If you a viper. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask and Comet the Radio Dog. The Humboldt Chronicles is made possible by Goat Global Humboldt, Humboldt Urban Market, and Mocha Humboldt. Much appreciation for your support of the Humboldt Chronicles. Recently on the Chronicles, we've turned our focus to the alarm bells going off in the local cannabis industry, falling wholesale prices, cultivation taxes, the large unregulated market, all threatening to wreck the Humboldt cannabis industry. We've spoken with those in the political fray, in the administrative world, and with industry advocates who worry that the situation could result in Humboldt farmers becoming uncompetitive. For this, the 51st episode of the Humboldt Chronicles, we wanted to go beyond bureaucracy and politics and talk to those who actually put their hands into the dirt and get their thoughts on the current state of the Humboldt cannabis industry. Our guests this month are Laura Lee and Dave Sandomino of Sunrise Mountain Farms in the Willow Creek area. We'll let them introduce themselves. My name is Dave Sandomino. Uh, I came to Humboldt County uh, back in 1997. I came here uh, simply because I thought it was an absolutely beautiful place and it was as far from New Jersey as I can get. And um, I, I traveled through a couple times. 95, and then I came back again in 96, and then I decided I was going to move here in 97. I came back, and then uh, I didn't really realize that, you know, Humboldt was the Shangri-La of weed, and I was always a a cannabis enthusiast, Uh, so it didn't take me very long to be exposed to the growing aspect, and uh, with that, it was just uh, a a new chapter. And I'm Laura Lee Sandomino. I grew up mostly in Los Angeles, and then I traveled overseas for a few years in Asia and other places. And when I came back to California for my travels, I had lived in Santa Cruz for a while as well, but I just felt like that was too crowded, and I was waiting in lines too much. So I wanted to come. I came to Humboldt County because um, it's just a spectacular place to live. People were friendly. I love the community. And um, I'm a nature lover, so I just felt really at home here. Uh, I moved here in 1998, so it's been a while. We've been here for quite a while. And we are raising our three children here. We're really happy to be uh, in this community. As longtime Humboldt residents predating the Prop 64 era, Laura Lee and Dave got into the cannabis business and dedicated themselves to doing things the right way following all the guidelines, all the rules and regulations, and paying all the fees and taxes. So we asked them, basically, how's that going so far? The amount of regulation and and fees and things we have to do, uh, just like they keep mounting up, and it's putting a lot of squeeze on the people who really are the grassroots farmers that really have been building this industry. And, you know, you got to remember, like, you know, Humboldt, was, Humboldt County was great in letting us operate in the transition, and we're really grateful for that opportunity. But at the same time, the taxes that were being taken on all us farms to build this industry really taxed us 
on another level, not just on a financial level, but also on a psychological and emotional level too. It's been a really interesting transition when we're all we're doing, trying to do is do everything right and try and follow the rules, building a new industry for our county to benefit from. Uh, but yet we keep getting hurdles and, and things thrown in front of us that just put the stick in the spokes, so to speak, you know? It's difficult for us to invest in our business when all of our money is just, you know, going out. There's just so many fees and regulations and the uh, just the code enforcement and everything that, you know, it just, it takes a lot of labor, which equals expense to keep up with all of the regulations. And I think, like, small businesses, sociologically, like, looking at prohibition in the past and stuff, like, small businesses suffer the most when when things are over-regulated. And the cannabis industry is just over-regulated. And I understand they're trying to get control of it, but there's a lot of work that can be done. <laughs> so we're trying to make changes. You know, we're involved in uh, our local um, cannabis alliances and writing letters to representatives and trying to make the changes that need to happen so that small farms can survive and thrive and do well. When I think about the 215 era, and, and you know, though I wasn't myself involved with it to any great extent, I did know quite a number of people who were. And the thing that impressed me the most was the real sort of close-knit sense of community that people who were involved with that business felt towards one another. And I suppose it that grew out of the you know, the battle days of the helicopters and, and the really heavy-handed prohibition. And I'm wondering if the, if the change from 215 conditions to 64 has eroded that sense of community in any way, or has it strengthened it, or has it had any effect on it at all? Uh, I think that it kind of plays in both directions, you know. I mean, the more the shifts have had that, that are changing, the more we're able to look to our neighbors as camaraderie to support one another, and then also, uh, you know, coming into the light with Prop 64 just allowed for more open communication. And I think that it actually connected people as well. And so um, I think it's important that uh, we all support each other in these changes, you know, because we're not these little individual farms. We are all together, Humboldt County farmers, cannabis farmers. And so I think with the legalization, it's allowing us to kind of stand in the light together and that kind of creates a stronger community. And so I feel like, you know, the 215 days definitely had their tight knit trust circles, you know, and I think that with Prop 64, it's really now it's support circles, you know, how are we going to come together to uh, make the changes that are necessary to support one another when, when the times are tough and to kind of help cohesively create a craft cannabis industry. So I think that we do see a good coming together. Did the change from 215 to, to 64 provide any additional sense of, of sort of security or stability? I mean, when you take the, the possibility that agents are going to swoop down and, and put you in jail more or less off the table, is that a, does that make a significant difference to you? It does make a difference to us. We have uh, three children, and um, it was 
yeah, definitely frightening to have helicopters fly over while I was holding my one-and-a-half-year-old at my house on my deck, you know, camp helicopter coming down really low. When I had, like, just hardly anything outside, it was, like, so, such a small, you know, row of plants. Yeah, so, you know, having those experiences for years, we really were excited to move into this legal market. I mean, we actually got involved back in like 2011 in the legal market when we invested in the Angelina, which was uh, going to be like the first distribution company in Humboldt County. And it was run by Bill Thorrington. And that was, it was in operations for two years and then it was shut down by the county. So, um, you know, we've kind of been trying to push for the legality for quite a while now. And um, we want to bring cannabis medicine to more people. And, you know, we just believe in what we do. We love what we do. And we were excited to take that legal track. But it has been super challenging. (laughs) It's been really challenging because I think we just basically, like, the war on drugs was, like, eradication in jail. And that's been replaced with code enforcement and taxation to a degree that it's not sustainable right now for the industry. Speaking of sustainability of the industry, uh, recently, um, of course, we've been all hearing and reading about the drop in wholesale pricing. How has that affected you and how has it affected uh, others in the business that you're aware of? Uh, I mean, basically, it's undermining everything. Uh, it's hard to plan your season when you're still sitting on a big chunk of your crop from last year and the, um, the market's flooded and you're you know, having to search avenues for it to go and the wholesale pricing is really low, lower than, you know, no one's really making money this year. I mean, the, the state raised its cultivation tax. And so with just the cultivation tax and getting your product processed, that right there is pretty much like the cost of a pound these days. And so that's not including any of the other costs of actually growing the product and and labor and everything else involved. So we're grateful to the county for helping us out with some of the grants that they've been offering in the state as well, because really it's um, that's part of what's helping us carry us through, you know, and then making our own sales with our brand uh, and trying to keep our brand sales up so that we can maybe put a little bit more value on the product. But even that, it's still, we're, we're in a market that is so saturated that it really, you know, it, it's, there's lots of things in, that we're looking positively to the future. But like right now, we're just kind of like hanging on and just hoping that we can get through these next year or two until some, maybe some federal legalization happens to allow for interstate commerce. When I talk to people about what is behind the price drop, the answer almost always is, well, it's it's overproduction. But are there things structurally in the industry that give rise to this overproduction? Or why is this a particular problem in the cannabis industry? Well, I think that there is an overproduction problem right now. I'm not sure why there are not more retailers that are coming online. I think it's something like 60% of the state, counties, or areas don't have retail. They're not allowing legal retail. And so I think that you know, one of the solutions could potentially be that some of those regions in California, perhaps the ones that voted yes on Prop 64, 
if those governments and municipalities went ahead and opened retail spaces, then we would have more places to sell our product in the state of California. That would help. It's not going to solve it, but that would create more marketplace. And then also for the state to kind of like limit what they're doing as far as giving out licenses. You know, I mean, they're giving away licenses that are like 80 acre farms, 100 acre farms. And they're, and we're already, and that's like after the fact that we're, that we're flooded, you know? So it's like, here we are in a, in an overly saturated market, but the state is still willing to give that license out because I think they're just looking at the fact that they're going to get 161 bucks a pound doesn't matter. You know, and so in a cultivation tax. In a cultivation tax. And so for them they look at it like, hey, the more licenses we give out, the more we're gonna make off of these pounds that they're creating. When really it's like, yeah, yeah, I mean, the state is looking to get that money no matter what, whether the product is sold or not. It's just being because it's being created where that doesn't make any sense. And so here we are in the in the sea of weed in California where there's no place for it to go. Even if every county was able to open up retail spaces, we need to get out of California as well. I think interstate commerce would be really helpful. Interstate commerce would be huge. And I think, you know, starting at the level with farmers coming together and working with the county to reduce our local taxes is really awesome. And it's a first step in the process. And having the county do that and kind of show the state as well that if we have the county's backing for some shifts in, in this taxation, maybe the state should take hold of that idea as well. And so if the state starts coming on with some, some uh, tax reform, it'll allow for these really slim times to get us through and allow for this transition to happen in the long term to allow us to stay in business and keep, keep our products flowing. I'm kind of circling back in my mind a little bit to something that you just said, uh, which was that maybe at current production levels, even if there were no restrictions on the demand side, there still would be overproduction. Am I understanding that correctly? I think so. Yeah. Yeah. I think there probably, there's so much production in the state that, yeah, I think that, I mean, there's absolutely going to be a lot of businesses and cultivators that go out of business. And, you know, mind you, this is, it's really sad because these businesses that are going out are the ones that actually care about the product, grow amazing product, and really put everything they have into it. And they're being washed out by these bigger operations that are growing subpar product. And it also puts a bad name for outdoor, you know, because if you have, if you have even like, you know, 40 acres of outdoor, I mean, how are you going to get the quality that you get out of a 10,000 to one acre size farm? You know, I mean, you're not. But when you're flooding the market at really cheap prices and everybody's in the squeeze right now, of course, that's, that's, where, that's what people are going to buy. So the state needs to kind of look at how many licenses they're giving out and how big these farms they are that they're allowing. With, with just, the, you know, do they, have, do they have some sort of insight to the market opening up interstate? We don't know, you know, but... If they're allowing for all these big, big grows to happen, maybe like that's what they're planning for is those floodgates to open. That's not going to happen soon, though. I mean, that's a few years no, off. No, a few, few years off. And so we, we need to be able to survive in the meantime. So really, we need tax reform. With the state of California and the cultivation tax, like they've said, we're really grateful that our county listened to us uh, recently and reduced our excise tax or square footage tax for this coming year. And you know, and just, and just so everyone understands that's listening, we still pay our income tax and 
our workman's comp and everything else that any other business would pay. And we're, we're fine with that. It's just these privilege taxes that are put on top of everything else. And so any business, it doesn't matter what you're running, when you, when you start throwing privilege taxes on top of that business, it's going to put a big strain. Then you're not even looking at like the form of taxation, 280E and how that limits what you can even write off with your business and just how this whole thing is just kind of a mess. Yeah, 280E is really damaging to businesses. So we're not able to write off business expenses. We're not able to write off marketing, CPA, bookkeepers, like normal business expenses. And so that goes into one of the challenging things of having, having a brand. And, you know, we can't write off sales reps. We can't write off the labor for people who are helping us with marketing and sales and things like that. So we're at a disadvantage because of that. That's just one of the many, many things that you have to contend with in the cannabis industry that no other no other business has to deal with. I want to just ask one more question on the, within the context of the oversupply and the market disruption that that causes. How important do you think it is for the state of California and maybe the country at large to reduce the size of the unregulated market? How significant a difference would that make in terms of your overall business? Yeah, I think that would make a big difference. Um, Absolutely. And that's where like the 60% or so of California that um, it doesn't have legal retail spaces, you know, there's a thriving black market in those areas. And then also like areas like Los Angeles, um, I've heard that there are a lot more illegal shops if they like crack down on some of the illegal shops that might really help as well because the consumers sometimes they don't know the difference between a legal shop and an illegal shop. You mentioned the uh, the prospect of federal legalization and, and we hear uh, fairly regularly from our congressman Jared Huffman who thinks it's inevitable but I think he would agree with you in your assessment that it you know it's not going to happen tomorrow and even if it did it would it would take some amount of time for that to really come about and the other thing that we hear about it, and I'd like to know what you guys think about this is that even with federal legalization We don't know exactly how it would happen. And do you worry about the prospect that there would be some states that would try to regulate how much of the product can come into their state? So it may not be as big an open market as we might think, because there would be some states that would want to try to protect their own markets. The thing that I've been concerned about is right now, like interstate commerce and legalization wouldn't really work very well, I think, for cannabis businesses because we are taxed in California more than other states. And so we really, if like interstate commerce opens tomorrow, we could be at a huge disadvantage. We wouldn't be able to compete with other states like Oregon and Colorado and Oklahoma. Like we just pay so many fees. We have so many regulations and so many taxes. So we would have to level up the playing field a little bit for us to be able to compete. In the, in the national market. In the national yeah. market. Yeah. And as far as people limiting the amount of California product to come into their own state, I would hope that Humboldt County's reputation that so many people nationwide know of would help carry our products into the national market. You know, if we as a county and as a, as a growers can kind of come together and and, you know, market it correctly. And it's not just the product, it's the culture. And people always connected with that. 
and I kind of feel that if there was a limitation on California product that was going in, I would hope that Humboldt County would have a place in that flow. Next, we'll find out how Laura Lee and Dave have made their farm life and family life work for them so far, but also we'll explore with them some challenges they face. You're listening to The Humble Chronicles, back in a moment. back to the Humboldt Chronicles. If you're just joining us, we're speaking with Laura Lee and Dave Sandomino of Sunrise Mountain Farms near Willow Creek. Laura Lee and Dave chose Humboldt County as a place to live and raise their family because of the intrinsic beauty of Humboldt County and the unique lifestyle it offers, just as so many others have over multiple generations. They didn't come because of the cannabis industry, but rather pursued their passion and came to it in an, if you'll allow me, organic way. We asked them to give us the history of Sunrise Mountain Farms. Sunrise Mountain Farms, um, well, I bought the property 18 years ago and lived in Willow Creek. It's uh, where, like I said, we're a small 10,000 square foot farm on the mountain. I was a massage therapist and then I grew a little bit of cannabis on the side and then, gosh, we, we've had a brand for about six years now that we've been selling in stores. Um, HPRC was the first store that started carrying our products. We used to make hash and rosin on site. We're not allowed to do that anymore because we need a manufacturing facility to do that, to harvest the trichomes off of our plants. See, Laura Lee and I met roughly a year after she got the property, and then um, she actually hired me to do some trimming work. <laughs> <laughs> and that's how we kind of met. And uh, with my construction and plumbing background, I helped her around the house and the property. And, um, you know, we both kind of, I, I kind of joked that we had like good Humboldt County romance in the beginning. <laughs> and, uh, you know, we're, and it was just like us connecting with the land, connecting with the plants. And I, I, you know, was plumbing at the time and she was doing her massage therapy and we just were building this, property in a way that you know it wasn't to just make a big grow on it it was a property that we saw as a homestead that we love to grow food on that we love to be part of and connect with and and um, go hiking on we're connected to national forest as well so we can go on some good decent hikes from the property and and you know uh, Sunrise Mountain kind of just evolved to kind of be what it is right now and I think it's just like kind of our love and our passion and our belief in the medicine of the plant and is what helped build what we have right now and coming into Prop 64 was one thing that was kind of good was like it really tightened up our business and it allowed for us to make some moves and and consolidate our square footage to be in an area and kind of build out the vision that we seen years and years ago like the possibility to be able to grow these plants openly and for for people to see because it really is such beauty to see these big plants growing outside and in the mountainscape and uh that's evolved with our business the idea of permaculture and building up the soil and growing soil and just connecting with our land Dave Jake's natural farming, which is really uh, bringing cannabis growing to the next level, I feel like. Is the natural farming, is that the same thing that you refer to as regenerative farming? Yes. And what, yes, could, it is. what is that? So basically what we're doing on the farm is one aspect is we collect indigenous microorganisms from the forest uh, via, via these little rice 
collection boxes that we make. And then we're able to mix that with sugar and grow those microbes. And then there's several steps in the process that you can either use them as a water-soluble uh, nutrient uh, or you can build it into uh, an IMO4, which is kind of growing out that uh, microorganism into kind of a, a rye or, or barley, and then you can spread that amongst the farm. And then you're spreading these microbes. Now, you got to remember, when you walk into a forest, right, you look at the forest, and it's lush, and it's green, and it's beautiful, and you're like, wow, no one's out here, like, putting nutrients on any of this stuff. You know, this is just nature doing what it does. And so the soil has everything that we need in it already. So it's a matter of bringing the microbiology and that would be our local microbiology into that soil to kind of help unlock everything that the plant needs for the roots to uptake. And so we're taking these indigenous microorganisms, and then we're also looking at uh, some of the, the fauna that grows around, and we have some stuff that we grow in our gardens, like the comfrey. We use bracken fern. We use horsetail. Um, and we make teas out of this stuff, and we can either spray or feed directly into the root zone. And then we even take some of the old flower and pruning leaves that we take off the plant in the previous year, and we make these um, kind of anaerobic teas with uh, some leaf litter that has, has the forest microbiology, and then you mix it in with the, uh, say that some, you got some moldy flower or the leaves that we pruned off in the flowering uh, phase of the plant. And then we mix those all together, and those microbes help break down all that plant material and unlock all those nutrients that were taken from that soil from the previous year. So we're basically feeding the plant back into itself with the nutrients that it already has stored within its tissues. And then we're also doing stuff like getting potassium from bananas and making calcium and cow mag from oyster shell and vinegar and fish amino acids which is uh, just a fermentation of fish parts and sugar. And, you know, the fish we can get locally at our docks here. And, and so we're just, like, looking at ways to close the loop. We really want to break our way off the bottle. We don't want to be having to be um, reliant on having to go spend money at the grocery store when we have everything we need around us and everything that we need is already in the soil. And we also do test our soil, and we do add some dry amendments that give some support to the plants because they are heavy feeders learning the process of the soil and that's actually what i'm doing right now I'm taking a, a course to just further that education with dr elaine ingham in the soil food web and really looking at just the future of farming and in, in all aspects you know being able to grow without having to use a chemical fertilizer whether it's cannabis or food or fruit i mean that that really should be the way of the future i saw your post earlier on facebook with the IMO boxes, which is very cool. I'd never heard of that before, and I, I was very interested in that. And one of the things you said was, you know, you put these boxes out, uh, and you never know whether you're going to collect something or not. How do you know that you've collected something that's that that's valuable that you want? When it's kind of like a white fuzz, I mean, everybody's probably seen this mole at some point in their life, whether it's on the bread in the refrigerator or the rice that they left in the refrigerator or something. But when you put it out in the forest and you start seeing these, uh, kind of like you, it looks just kind of not, I want to say like black. You don't want to think black, but maybe kind of like a light grayish. And it's kind of got this white hair. It kind of like looks like a kind of like a mold afro in a sense, you know, like this, these big puffs and this inter, interlinking little filaments that connect the rice to one another that kind of make it one solid piece opposed to being little granulars, you know. So you're kind of looking for this 
this bacteria that's growing within the rice, inner between the rice, and kind of like doing these little puffball at the ends. You know, you know, you must have, sometimes you might find something else that's just totally, you know, green and goopy or, you know, left it out too long or, you know, it's like you got to find your, your sweet spot and timing. And, you know, I have, I have some IOML boxes out right now. I'm hoping that this rain kind of brings some good moisture in to help everything grow in the dry period in between the storms. So, What types of products come from your farm? Is it mostly flour? Mostly flour, yeah. Mostly flour. We also have uh, hash, like bubble hash, water hash. Uh, we make a tincture. It's a CBD-rich tincture that has a raw cannabinoids in it as well as activated cannabinoids to give a fuller effect. Pre-rolls. Pre-rolls. Yeah, the, the CBD-rich, um, we have, uh, it's a strawberry G. It's a, it's a plant that we grow on the farm where it's a good one-to-one, two-to-one, depending on the year. And but we make pre-rolls of that, tinctures of that. And then we do make bubble hash as well, which is a nice topper to the dry flour. We, we do have dry flour. It's, yeah, mostly flour. And, and how many different cultivars do you have going at any one time? And how frequently do you change cultivars? You know, that's like a tough one. We really had to pare it down. So we're down to about nine cultivars. And we kind of do a seasonal shift with some of the cultivars just to kind of change up the menu. But then we like to keep a couple just in-house varieties that work well for us, uh, both uh, in the field and in the market. And so but what we like to do is, you know, try and get a trending strain that's not too oversaturated. And then we also do some small seed plant pheno hunts where we can uh, pick out a cultivar out of the different characteristics between the, the sisters and find the one that we think that will work well in the market. And then we bring that into the, into the market the following year. So like this year, we have this Burmese mimosa for the folks that like a good daytime orangey skunk smell with a great flavor profile. Um, we're really excited about bringing that into the field this year. Something that we found last year. And then uh, for sale right now, we have uh, probably about half of our strains are cultivars that we've pheno hunted or created on our farm. So about half of our cultivars are our own genetics or like they've said, we pheno hunt other genetics so that we have unique varieties. And then we'll also have just some trending varieties that we know will probably sell well on the market. The new hot thing. <laughs> How do you handle distribution? <laughs> distribution, right. We work with a local company here in Eureka. Distribution has been a challenge for a lot of farmers. I think there's, um, yeah, distribution, it's, uh, there's a lot of farmers that have been burned. We've been burned in the past where we almost went out of business really because of it. Like distributors, you know, we're fronting our product to them because it's a consignment model, which is not really a, you know, great model for business. But, um, and then if that, the distributor um, has financial difficulties or, you know, they say they can't pay you or they can't sell your product and then they give it back to you and it's like, damage there's really nothing that the farmer can do and so i think that there's something that needs to be worked on is there needs to be some kind of accountability you know the state of california requires 
cultivators to go through a distributor, but it's a system that's not really working very well. I'm wondering if if the if the rules were different and you weren't required by law to go through a distributor, would you still kind of have to because it would be difficult for each cultivator to kind of create their own distribution system? Yeah, I mean, we don't really want to be in the business of distribution ourselves necessarily because we don't want to be driving down to Los Angeles or these areas. So we would probably use a distributor still, but I think that it should be an optional thing. Um, there are connections that we have um, that, you know, it would be really great if we could make direct sales, if we could make direct sales to retailers. It would also reduce the cost. Distribution is expensive. It's anywhere from 12 to 25% or something like that. So really where the uh, market price is right now, we can't really afford that. And I think that, yeah, it would be really helpful to be able to sell our products directly to customers at farmers markets and events as well and it would be great to be able to have people come to our farm like tourism um, would be helpful as well I think to be able to give farm tours Um, right now with the permitting process in Humboldt County um, I think you need a category four road in order to have any kind of tourism to your property. And, um, you know, in most cases, most people don't have Category 4 roads to their properties. And I just think that in Napa and other areas, Sonoma, like, they don't have Category 4 roads going to every winery and the hot springs. And, you know, there's a lot of tourism that happens down there from the Bay Area. You know, we would love to see an increase of tourism and we would love to promote that and invite people from Southern California and the Bay Area and other areas to come and visit a humble cannabis farm, see what it's like, experience it. Our state assembly member, Jim Wood, has introduced a proposal that would allow direct sale at certain events and certain gatherings. I assume you would support that, right? And if that happened, wouldn't that make a difference for Sunrise Mountain Farms? Yes, absolutely. Being able to go and speak directly to the customers is such a strong marketing aspect for us. It's more rewarding, you know. It's like when you're making these connections directly and being able to directly sell your product, the way it's set up now is usually like, you know, you have your booth if you're going to go sell something, but the person wants to come buy something for your booth and it has to walk like, you know, 10 booths on the other side of the of the space to to actually buy the product and like in that time that a customer walks from your booth to the cash register they probably forgot who you even were you know <laughs> just because it just makes it because it's not a fluid way for the customer business relation to build and so being able to go places and have farmers market style to show what we do directly and make these connections with people. And then, you know, for Humboldt County to open up to a tourism aspect to allow for people to come in, uh, to have that experience, to see where their plant is grown or where these plants are grown. I mean, it's really, you know, it moves people when they come and see a Humboldt County farm when it's in its full glory. As Larry and I talk with those in the California cannabis industry, There are some things that seem to be at the top of the list when we ask about suggested changes to the industry landscape in this state. We asked Laura Lee and Dave about that, and we'll get their answer in unison next. 
back with more Humboldt Chronicles right after this. Welcome back, and thank you very much for listening to the Humboldt Chronicles. In our final segment tonight, we continue our discussion with Laura Lee and Dave Sandomino of Sunrise Mountain Farms near Willow Creek. We asked them their opinion about a topic that arises over and over again as we speak with people who work in the industry. Just how sustainable is the Humboldt County cannabis industry as currently structured? While recent tax relief, though temporary in nature, is welcome, the structural problems in the industry continue. We asked Laura Lee and Dave what further changes they would like to see, and clearly, a couple of things are front of mind for both of them. Quite a number of people that I've talked to uh, who are in the business say that as, as it's currently structured, the regulatory structure, the market structure here in California, uh, it, it is unsustainable, that, that the industry just can't, uh, let alone flourish, the, the industry can't even survive if it, if it continues in this way. It's, 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 it's in a death spiral. Other people are a little less dramatic than that. So I'm just wondering what your thoughts are. Do you think there necessarily needs to be some restructuring for the industry to survive? And if you do believe that, what would be your top one or two things that you'd like to see change? Yes, I think that there are things that absolutely need to change. Number one, uh, cultivation, cultivation tax, tax. <laughs> state cultivation tax, which is a fixed tax. It would be great to see that go away or be highly reduced or even reduced for farms, smaller farms under an acre or something. But I know like big business is feeling the weight of that as well. So the cultivation tax needs to be reformed. Or just getting rid of, get rid of the cultivation tax. And uh, there's no other agricultural product that's charged the cultivation tax, only cannabis. And then secondly, I would say direct sales. Farmers markets, direct sales. Yeah, it would help a lot too. So after that, do you think you've got it all figured out (laughs) what, what the solution is? No, and I will admit that I do not have it all figured out. You know, one thing with just about everybody we talk to uh, on these topics, uh, recognizing cannabis as agriculture would go a long way to help level the playing field, don't you think? Yeah, I mean, we hear that, you know, from from things like the, the way the distribution system is, is structured to cultivation tax. There are certain things that cannabis farmers have to do that no other farmers, no other businesses have to do. Yeah. So just kind of treating them the same as any other business to the extent that you can yeah. would seem like that would make a, a difference. And also we hear, uh, we heard it in unison just a moment <laughs> ago, and, and you know, we, we could yeah. probably line up every cultivator in Humboldt County, and in unison they would say uh, the cultivation tax has to be either restructured or, or gotten rid of. Yeah, made permanent something uh the tax relief made permanent who knows um and there there are things that uh cultivators cannot write off their cost of doing business the way other businesses can every single other business yeah in the united states can deduct Except this one the, the cost of their accountant and yeah. you know the, the you know all of these regular business i mean you just take it for granted that a business mm-hmm. can deduct business expenses but not cannabis mm-hmm. producers so that's another factor. Yeah. Uh, there are just so many different things. Direct sales t- to consumers. Right, right. And, you know, at first when I started hearing that, I thought, well, okay, yes, I could see, but how big of a difference would that make really overall? Mm-hmm. And w- the way that they, uh, the way that Laura Lee and Dave talked about it as 
being part of their marketing, like that direct yep. communication with customers being an essential part of their marketing plan, uh, kind of kind of shine a light on it for me. It's like, oh, okay, yeah, I could see that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Showing up and being there, right. having the product there, the consumer gets to meet the farmer the way they do at a farmer's market. Right. And, and some of that may be on the horizon. We don't know. Jim Wood, as we mentioned here in the show, is uh, backing a proposal and working on a proposal that would allow that to happen at certain events, yeah, certain times. Not, so that's a step. Not farmer's market, but, you know, baby stepping your yeah, way there. one and, step at a time. I mean, and there, there is a, you know, there is a large-scale rulemaking proceeding going on in Sacramento right now where they're looking at a lot of the regulations and they're taking comments uh, with the eye to, uh, to, to uh, changing the way some of the regulations are written. So uh, yeah. we'll have to see what comes out of that process. So if politicians are listening out there, these are some things that can be done. Of course, the overarching problem, the size of the unregulated market in this state. That's the thing that I, we, ha, we have a, sometimes a hard time getting people to talk about that mm-hmm. for, for reasons that are easy to understand. Um, but I keep going back to that. Now, I'm not, you know, I don't have an MBA. I don't even have an M, let alone an <laughs> MBA. But I have an M, but it's not a BA. Yeah, it's a I, PA, public administration. So, you know, speaking from my uninformed position, it's just hard for me to believe that an unregulated market of the size that some people estimate it at, and some people put it at 75% of the overall market in California, yeah. I just can't see how that can't be an enormous factor in all of this. It has to be. And exactly what you do about that is hard to say. Obviously, nobody wants a return to heavy-handed prohibition. I mean, that's just, we, we tried it. It clearly didn't work. Mm-hmm. That's in nobody's interest. So going back to that, it isn't and shouldn't be an option. Well, the size of the unregulated market, if it really is 75% of what's being produced in this state, I think speaks to demand. So if the demand is there in the unregulated market, maybe it tells us that prices are lower in the unregulated market. So consumers are realizing that and choosing to go there. So by making legal producers and retailers more competitive might be a step in the right direction, wouldn't you think? And so, you know, some of the things that we're talking about here, maybe they need to be done sooner rather than later. Yeah, yeah, and and opening up more areas with legal retail. I mean, yes. we hear that over and over again. As over well. and over. Yeah, large parts of the state have opted out. I'm Chuck Rogers with producer Larry Trask and Comet the Radio Dog. This edition of the Humboldt Chronicles will be posted soon at 941lounge.com, lostcoastoutpost.com, and at iTunes for listening and downloading. Thanks to our guests, Laura Lee and Dave Sandomino of Sunrise Mountain Farms near Willow Creek. And we send much appreciation to our sponsors, Goat Global Humboldt, Humboldt Urban Market, and Mocha Humboldt. Thank you very much for supporting the Humboldt Chronicles. We'll be back with the Humboldt Chronicles at 6 p.m. on the third Wednesday of April. See you next time, April the 20th. Uh Uh-huh. 420 at 6 p.m.